Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 45, Dead Man's Hill. In the last episode, we reopened the Eastern Front with Brusilov's spectacular assault against the Austrians in Galicia. Using innovative tactics and suffocating artillery fire, the Russians tore into the disjointed Austrians, unhinging the 350-kilometer front south of the Pripyat. Within days, two Hapsburg armies had disintegrated, and the Russians had achieved breakthroughs at the extreme ends of the front. With his army deteriorating, Conrad appealed to Falkenhayn for assistance, and in the process, surrendered his last shred of independence to the German general. The success of Bruce Love's operation caught everyone, including the Russians themselves, by surprise. It sparked a crisis for the Central Powers, which, although contained for the time being, would prove difficult to subdue. To reinforce the East, Conrad and Falkenhayn were forced to allocate reserves from their respective campaigns. Falkenhayn diverted troops from Verdun, while Conrad was coerced to call an end to his Straff expedition in Trentino. For Conrad, and to a certain extent the dual monarchy as a whole, the Russian attack was as debilitating as it was humbling. Her army had been gutted, and Conrad's failure to observe the warning signs was an irreparable blow to his reputation. His phantasmal boasting had grown tiresome, and his political opponents began to coalesce, itching to see him replaced, and to establish a new military command under German oversight. But by mid-June, there were hints that the Russians were running into problems. Efforts to support Brusilov north of the Pripyat failed to materialize and a reinforced Austro-German army was able to mount an effective defense at Koval. By the 24th of June, Brusilov's momentum was temporarily checked. But with the Anglo-French assault astride the River Somme about to begin, the Central Powers were not out of the woods yet. So with the Russians on the move in the east, we're going to swing back to Verdun and get caught up to things unfolding there. The spring and summer of 1916 saw the fighting intensify on both banks of the Meuse. The Germans continued to press towards the citadel, eager to seize the high ground which the French had used to great effect. But in early May, their fortunes would change. The Germans would seize the Western Heights, which opened the doors for a renewed assault, this time against the symbolic bastion of Fort Vaux. Since we haven't been at Verdun for a while now, I've prepared two separate episodes to cover the time from March to June. This episode will focus more on the political side of things up to the German capture of the Western Heights in May. The next episode will be to discuss the offensive aimed at Fort Vaux in more detail, specifically the epic stand of the fort's beleaguered garrison against a well-supplied German attack, which is actually a personal favorite of mine, and I couldn't resist giving it its own episode. So when we last left the Meuse, the Germans had expanded operations to the West Bank, in an effort to silence the French guns that were exacting a fearful toll on German units to the east. Beginning on the 5th of March, the Germans were able to carve a foothold at the base of Mordholm and the flanking Hill 304, but were unable to seize the summit. By the end of March, casualties at Verdun had reached 81,600 German to 89,000 French, and the battle showed no signs of slowing down. By now, it had grown into a bloated monstrosity that outgrew its foundations. Falkenheim had been coerced into attacking on both banks, something he was adamantly opposed to in February and stiffening French resistance had snagged his advances like the stays of a corset. On the German side, enthusiasm for the battle was beginning to waver. Falkenhayn himself expressed doubts over whether the French could be broken before the Allied offensive got underway. As the battles around Mortholm and Hill 304 raged, Falkenhayn hoped to preempt the Allies by attacking the British and Arras, 
This proposal, however, never got legs. The commander of the 6th Army opposite the British declined the invitation knowing full well that it would be a meaningless half-measure. Pressure from the international community brought further doubts to Falkenhayn. On the 24th of March, an English steamer, the SS Sussex, was torpedoed by a U-boat while en route to Dieppe. Three Americans were hurt in the attack, prompting a stern reply from President Wilson, who threatened to sever diplomatic ties if such attacks continued. This had piqued Falkenhayn's adversary, the Chancellor Betham Holwig, who pressured the Kaiser to remove Falkenhayn from command. Unfortunately for the disparaging Chancellor, the Kaiser disagreed with the motion. A change in command now, he feared, would dishearten Germany's allies, and give her enemies an important morale boost on the eve of their offensive. After meeting with Falkenhayn at the end of May, the Kaiser was reassured in his chief's plan. The architect of Verdun would stay for now, but his position was less than stable. But on the battlefields themselves, things were not moving at their prescribed pace. Success was being measured in meters, and lost ground was being fought over with increasing frequentness and savagery. The capture of Fort Douaumont and arrival of Philippe Pétain on the 25th of February had decided that the battle would be a long, drawn-out affair. By the end of March, Verdun was already enshrouded in mythology. For France, it was the sacred city on the Meuse. To the Germans, a beacon of their valor. The two nations were thus locked in a death grip, betting everything and reserving nothing. It was a battle fought with machines, as the belligerents put their terrifying strength of firepower on full display. To satisfy the insatiable appetite of the guns, the Meuse-Bincer was fueled by an expanding network of supplies that ensured logistics, not conquered ground, would be the deciding factor. A single German division of 16,000 men required 36 ammunition trains, carrying all sorts of medium and heavy caliber shell. While the French lost service of their rail lines in the opening bombardment, Pétain turned to automobiles. The Voie Sacrée, running 75 kilometers from Bar-le-Duc to Verdun, supplied everything their fighting men would need. In a 10-day period from the 24th of February to the 6th of March, 3,500 trucks carried 190,000 troops and 23,000 tons of munitions to the front. By mid-March, the German advance had been checked along both banks, and the French were biting back with equal tenacity. Pétain had already secured his place as a national hero. But at German 5th Army headquarters, Crown Prince Wilhelm doubted the chances of continued operations. He berated Falkenhayn for destroying the 5th Army, in what he described as sacrificial wastes. Britain had not abandoned her best sword, and the one-for-one -one casualty exchange was a far cry from the 5-2 to two that Falkenhayn predicted. Crown Prince Wilhelm had always been suspicious of Falkenhayn's objective, and the chief's whirling dervish approach to operations did not help patch things over. It was a confusing web of misinformation and contradictions, which divided senior staff into partisans. The goal of taking Verdun itself remained optional, and you would get a different set of answers depending on who you talked to. The key issue, as always, remained manpower, the demands of which depended on that day's chosen objective. Falkenhayn exercised a tight grip on the battle, but expected the crown prince to undertake huge operations on vague instructions with whatever reserves he could scrape together. To accommodate the increasing, often contradictory demands of the army chief, the Crown Prince was persuaded to divide his force into separate army groups, one for each bank, a further sign that the battle was taking on a whole new dimension and growing beyond the constraints of regular leadership. Surveying the shattered landscape of the West Bank, where the Germans had advanced a pitiful three kilometers in four months at a cost of 69,000 casualties, General Maximilian von Gallwitz, newly arrived commander of Meuse Group West, 
summed up the mood of senior staff when he said, quote, too great a task undertaking with inadequate reserves, end quote. Although he was new to the scene, Galwitz was quickly introduced to the battle's nature. A noted artillerist, he was immediately struck by the effectiveness of French counterfire as it swept down from Mortholm and Hill 304. As he surveyed the field, he watched as a direct hit blew apart one of his divisional commanders traveling in their staff car. That evening, Galwitz added a gloomy appendage, writing, quote, We will be in for done at the earliest in 1920, quote. Nevertheless, the Germans appreciated that without the Western Heights secured, the battle would remain at an impasse. So far, they had won a series of half-victories, storming Fort Duomond and seizing key areas on the East Bank. But in the process, they marched themselves into the exact situation they had designed for the French, pinned down in killing fields by an entrenched enemy commanding the high ground. Whether it was stubborn nationalist pride or the equally stubborn belief that things would prevail, the current situation made withdrawal impossible. Germany would need to press forward and complete the task, while the French, determined to defend their soil, resolved to fight on. With this, the two nations staked all, and the battle continued. By the end of March, the Germans were able to nibble away at the base of the Western Heights. On the 31st of March, Malancourt fell, followed by Hukor and Bethancourt on the 5th and 8th of April. Under a curtain of iron, the Germans inched forward, and by the first thaw, were better situated to launch a renewed attack on the ridge itself. For much of March, April, and then May, the twin-crested ridge of Mordholm and Hill 304 became a source of obsession for German command. Since the original plans had not called for an assault on the West Bank, Peytan had used these positions to pour diagonal counterfire against the Germans on the east. In the three-month struggle, the battlefields along the base of the ridge were a vision of hell. Attacking uphill against a well-entrenched enemy proved costly. Entire battalions were melted in the cauldron. Continuous shelling smashed woodlands, stripped vegetation, and blasted nearby towns beyond recognition. Huge shell craters, now muddled in the spring thaw, sucked up guns, horses, and men. By April, Hill 304 was actually renamed Hill 297, after artillery had stripped 7 meters off its summit. But I'll keep referring to it as Hill 304 for the sake of simplicity. The West Bank was the site of some of the most horrific and savage fighting of the whole battle. It was here when Verdun became a mechanical gauntlet, where men lived underground as the guns flayed the surface above. It was the incessant shelling, spread across a battlefield just 26 square kilometers, which gave Verdun its peculiarly sinister characteristic. The constant roar of artillery made burying the dead impossible. French and Germans alike found it easier to just roll the dead over the parapet into the nearest shell hole. Oftentimes, these bodies would be pounded, smashed, and dismembered by the next round of shelling. This horrific spectacle was particularly jarring, and left an imprint on the minds of the men who bore witness. It was not death the men at Verdun feared. It was the prospect of being forgotten, lost in some disputed area with nothing to send home as closure. The beast, the mincer, the ogre, or the minotaur, were names given to personify the churning grinder which seemed to consume the bodies of the living and dead. Alfred Joubert, a fresh-faced 21-year-old lieutenant who arrived at Verdun on the 17th of May, recalls the sense of helplessness he felt as he watched the bodies of his comrades suffer further indignations. Quote, to die from a bullet seems to be nothing. Parts of our being remained intact. But to be dismembered, torn to pieces, reduced to pulp, 
This is the fear that flesh cannot support, and which is fundamentally the great suffering of the bombardment. End quote. Other veterans recall seeing the dead embedded into the walls of trenches, with heads, legs, and feet, just as if they had been shoveled by the picks and shovels of a work party. Newcomers making their way to the front recalled in horror that the crunches and snaps beneath their feet turned out to be the bones of fallen men, whose corpses, recently unearthed by artillery, hinted that Verdun gave up its dead as fast as it claimed them. Echoing the sentiment of Alfred Joubert, Jacques Picard, an infantryman posted near Fort du Amand, recalls a similar sense of dread and helplessness. Quote, when it's my turn to be laid low as well, my head smashed in like this man here, or my stomach opened like that one there, will my men take the time to put me somewhere out of the way? Men will march over me, and the nails of their boots will rip up my face. Just as a moment ago, I ripped up the face of that corporal when I stumbled over him in the snow. End quote. A soldier of the German 50th Division perhaps best summed up the Verdun experience by writing, quote, The torture of having to lie powerless and defenseless in the middle of an artillery battle was something for which there is nothing comparable on earth. End quote. Indeed, of all the sights and sounds experienced by the combatants, it was the artillery which left the longest imprint. New arrivals, making their way along the Voie Sacrée to the Citadel, could hear the battle long before seeing it, like a gigantic forge rumbling without pause. Towers of smoke and thundercloud covered Verdun most of the time. The perpetual darkness, broken only by the flash and crash of artillery and shell impacts. With artillery commanding the field above ground, men lived like troglodytes under it. For many, the experience of Verdun was something unworldly, something so detached and alien to the war already. The infantryman has no function except to get himself crushed, recalled the lieutenant of the 151st Infantry. He dies without glory, without any feeling of elan in his heart, at the bottom of a hole, far away from any witness. The anticipation of attack was perhaps the most gut-wrenching and terrifying ordeal. Men huddled in dark, foul-smelling shelters as the guns roared above them. The ground shook and trembled with each impact. In their shelters, they were relatively safe. But once they set off across the broken lunar landscape, they were exposed to the full violence of industrial war. For veterans, Verdun was a monstrosity, an industrial malak whose insatiable appetite required daily supplement of men and material. Units were annihilated by rolling projectiles and scythed down by machine guns, over and over, day after day. As Ian Osby writes, Verdun was a battle without shape. It did not follow regular patterns of attack and defend. Men fought to the death over shell craters, where mud became flesh and flesh became mud. Each side lived in the other's pockets, separated by a few dozen meters of putrid earth. With their opening bombardment, the Germans had given Verdun its character, and their capture of Duoman a few days later had set the seal on both sides' commitment to the struggle. For the Germans, an augury of victory, seize Verdun, and break out from enemy encirclement. For France, a symbol of national pride which made any lingering thought of withdrawal impossible. The spring of 1916 was a turning point for the two armies. The non-stop fighting since February had taken its toll both militarily and politically. The most significant changes occurred in France. At Chantilly, Joffre had grown tired of Pétain's seemingly unending demands for manpower. For Papa Joffre, whose attention was fully dedicated to the planning of the upcoming Somme offensive, Verdun had slipped to secondary importance. The fighting should have ended months ago, and he bombarded Pétain with repeated orders for immediate counterattacks. 
but Pétain was not interested in attacking. His plan was to contain the German offensive and use small, localized attacks to keep the lines from moving. His brilliant defense of the citadel had made him a national hero, and he correctly identified that if Verdun was to remain French, more manpower was needed. Pétain's bucket brigade system, where units were rotated in and out of the battle after an allotted time frame, had its advantages and drawbacks. It boosted morale, since men could look forward to a reprieve after their tours were complete, and it guaranteed that well-rested veterans were mixed in with new recruits. A side effect of this was that by December, 123 divisions, or three-quarters of the French army on the Western Front, had served in the Battle of Verdun. This proved to be a huge strain on the army's fighting strength, and required that Pétain dip into Joth reserves earmarked for the Somme. It also meant that Verdun promised to be a long battle, and Pétain had gone to lengths to prepare for that eventuality. This formed the basis of a rift which grew between the two generals. For Joffre, the war would be decided offensively on the Somme. For Pétain, defensively at Verdun. Joffre was widely criticized in the chamber for leaving the forts undefended, and he was eager to silence his critics by having Pétain retake Douaumont as soon as possible. But a prolonged defensive battle aimed at exhausting the Germans, was not part of Joffre's equation. For Joffre, lines on a map determined military success. France needed to be liberated, and a defensive-minded strategy promoted by Pétain was not bringing desired results. So on the 30th of April, Joffre took advantage of a unique situation, and had Pétain promoted, removing him from command of the 2nd Army and kicking him upstairs to command Army Group Center. No one was fooled by the change but Joffre was able to deflect criticism by arguing that Pétain's talents were needed elsewhere. Pétain would still hold nominal control of the battle, but it would fall to his replacement, General Robert Nevel, to call the shots on the ground. The arrival of Robert Nevel marked the beginning of a new, aggressive French army at Verdun. Fifty-eight years of age at the time of the battle, Nevel enjoyed a meteoric rise, going from a regimental colonel to commanding a field army in just under a year. He would later become supreme commander with Joffre's dismissal in December. He, like Joffre, believed in the doctrine of attack, and that the key to success was a matter of moral force. For Nevel, the end always justified the mean. He had the gift of dressing old ideas in new clothes, which was aided by his extraordinary ability to swoon politicians left and right. Although polarizing in France, he won the admiration from the British because he spoke fluent English, making him a threat both militarily and diplomatically. Arriving with Nevel was his second-in-command, Charles Meijan, whom Alistair Horne described as the toughest general in the whole French army. Commanding the newly-arrived 5th Division, Meijan carried with him a sinister reputation. To his troops, he was known as the Butcher, or Eater of Men but this was a source of pride rather than protest. The colonel looked like a wild boar about to charge, and he breathed energy and daring. Widely criticized for high casualty rates amongst his men, Meijan's troops were fiercely loyal. They referred to themselves as Meijan's boys, and frequently stated that no one was better at getting you in and out of a jam. The new command duo of Nevel and Meijan officially took over on May 1, 1916, just as the Crown Prince's 5th Army launched a massive assault against the heights of Mortholm and Hill 304. Mortholm and Hill 304 commanded the west bank much in the same way Fort Douaumont commanded the east. Mortholm has three main ridges, two of which were the site of numerous forts and fieldworks. 
The most northern ridge, Mort Home, or Dead Man's Hill, a name given well before the war started, offered exceptional possibilities for observation in fields of fire. The French lines ran north of Mort Home. They were backed by a stream which formed a natural barrier to the German advance. Mort Home was flanked by two smaller heights, Hill 304 to the west and Goose Hill to the east, from which French artillery could shell the enemy in all directions. In short, Hill 304 was the key to Mort Home, and Mort Home was the key to the West Bank. Beginning on May the 3rd, the Germans brought up 500 heavy guns and proceeded to blast the living crap out of the ridge. One French officer was buried alive three times by churned earth, and the smoke billowed two and a half thousand feet into the air. It was a battle of madmen inside a volcano, recalled one French staff officer. For the defenders' position on the ridge, suffering through miserable conditions and constant shelling, this new assault proved too much to bear. With no communication with the Citadel, men of the 69th and 40th Divisions held out as long as they could, using grenades and bayonets to stave off the German advance. Fighting atop Hill 304 was savage. French estimates placed their losses at 10,000 over the first 24 hours, the bulk of these falling on a front just 2 kilometers in length. With no water to drink and rising temperatures, men were driven mad with thirst, and the battlefield soon reeked of decay and nitrates. One German witness recalled that everything they touched and ate smelt of decomposition, due to the high concentration of corpses. What helped the Germans seize the western heights were a trio of tunnels dug along the northern and southern slopes of Mordholm. These three tunnels, codenamed Bismarck, Crown Prince, and Gullwitz, note none named after Falkenhayn, were an underground expressway for German forces making their way up the ridgeline. They provided safe access to the front in shell-proof shelters for command posts and power stations. Once complete, the longest tunnels, Crown Prince and Gullwitz, measured 800 to 1,000 meters in length, and contained their own full-time garrisons, along with communication posts, kitchens, and medical stations. The French knew of these tunnels, but efforts to collapse them were unsuccessful. It took several days of desperate, close-quarter fighting before the ridge was cleared, and in three weeks, all of Mortholm was swept of French resistance. The area was so saturated with nitrates that even after the armistice, it remained uninhabitable. Efforts to reforest came to naught, and to this day it remains a ghost commune, and its surrounding settlements were henceforth known as the villages that died for France. Visitors to the battlefield today will find a chilling memorial atop Mort Home, dedicated to the French 69th Division, which was eliminated almost to the man in the desperate fighting. The monument is simple, a skeletal representation of death, wrapped in shroud holding an immense flag and flaming torch, stares off into the horizon with stoic determination. Beneath it lays a simple inscription, taken from Nevelle's famous order of the day. Quote, they did not pass. End quote. Unlike the memorials found on the Somme, like the massive one at Val or the Canadian monument at Vimy Ridge, there is no impressive architecture or symbolism. The death memorial at Mortholm is a direct representation of the horrors that unfolded, not just at Mortholm, but at Verdun as a whole. A century later, its effect to conjure contemplation has not diminished, and I highly recommend looking it up to see for yourself. With the heights on the west bank now cleared, Falkenhayn could turn his attention back east. After Mainjean's disastrous attempt to retake Fort Duamond on the 22nd of May, which we discussed back in episode 36, 
Falkenhayn again grabbed the initiative. His pessimism forgotten, he was eager to press forward an inch towards the citadel. His immediate objective would be the recently completed Fort Vaux, situated on the extreme east end of the French line against the Rouvre Plain. For this operation, Falkenheim prepared five infantry divisions of 80,000 men, supported with artillery, gas shells, and flamethrower units. The attack on Fort Vaux, part of Operation Makeup, would be the largest German assault since the opening bombardment in February. Fort Vaux, however, the smallest fortress in the Verdun complex, would not go quietly. Commanded by a twice-wounded colonel from Bordeaux, the 600-odd-man garrison would stop the German army in its tracks. Unlike Liège, Namur, or Douaumont, the battle at Fort Vaux would become a microcosm of Verdun itself, and prove that these outdated, obsolete forts, long stripped of artillery and defenses, could still have a say. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This week, I would like to send a thank you to listener Glenn, who recently donated to the show. Thank you very much for your donation, Glenn. All donations go to help cover the cost of acquiring sources to ensure that I can deliver the most accurate and up-to-date research available. If you really enjoy the show, go to iTunes and leave us a 5-star review. iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been Episode 45 of the Great War Podcast, and we'll see you again shortly. 